Material on this program is intended for general information only and should not be taken as specific investment, tax, or legal advice. None of the information contained in this broadcast is intended by the host to be a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. Endorsed Local Provider is an endorsement of customer service only and does not reflect quality of investment decisions and is not connected to investment returns. Further information is available by contacting Richard Young Associates, a registered investment advisor, security sold through Independent Financial Group, LLC, member of FINRA and SIPC. Welcome to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house and giving out prescriptions for better financial health and making smart decisions with your money. We give common sense solutions to your complex problems. I'm Steve Marbert, a certified financial planner and an investment advisor with over 20 years' experience in providing financial planning and investment advice. And I'm John Travis. I'm a Dave Ramsey local provider. I also have an MBA in finance and have been helping corporations and individuals with planning for over 20 years. And I'm Gordon Leppard, financial advisor with Richard Young Associates. Good to be here today, guys. Yep. Yeah, it is good to be here, and we're excited to have you listening to us today on our weekly Rose show. We're right here every Saturday like today from 9 to 10 a.m., and, uh, you know, you can go to our website, moneymd.net. You can stream us there. Mm-hmm. You can. We have all our podcasts on the website. It's a yeah. great way to listen to us. That's been very popular, I think. That's a great yes. addition to the show. People can go back and listen to past shows if they miss it. Um, yeah, you so. don't necessarily have to be listening right then on, on, the, uh, on air, but we'd rather have you listening in real time to us. And, uh, you know, also send us your questions. Uh, you can email us directly at info at moneymd.net, or you can link to us right there on our website, moneymd.net. Well, guys, I think we have a great show lined up for today. Um, you know, very interesting topics. And one of them is going to be, you know, the late Thomas Stanley wrote the book, mm-hmm. um, The Millionaire Next Door. And he recently passed away. So we have the seven insights from his book, The Millionaire Next Door. I think that it's just timeless. That's a classic. They're timeless. They really are. Everybody should read that book. They really should. It should be on the reading list of colleges and high schoolers, you know. It really should. And we got this. We're, we're going to summarize it right here this morning. You want to stay tuned for that. I mean, there were seven findings he found that, that millionaires... Uh, you know, their attributes that millionaires pretty consistently have. Yeah, very good. And we're going to follow that up with um, some uh, information on college planning. And um, there's some things that the colleges out there don't want you to know. And, you know, I was reading through this and um, having kids, you know, in college, gone through college, uh, you know, interesting to, to see some of these tidbits and kind of make sense as you reflect back. And, Steve, I know you've, you've probably related to some of these, and, Gordon, you will Absolutely. at some point. So um, this is um, some pretty good tips. Yeah, they're very interesting tips. I think it's a lot of insight here. You want to pay attention. To well, these. it's really become a business, hasn't it? Oh, it absolutely. Is, you know, no doubt. And, uh, it really gets down to the dollars. And speaking of dollars and college, um, you know, what are adult children, uh, young adults doing with their money yeah. after college? Yeah, it's a good Are question. they ready? And um, that's going to be the, the topic of our discussion there as we conclude things. So um, I would it, say it'll be interesting to get Yeah, the answer probably is generally no, but in some cases they are, and we got right. some tips on that. Well, unfortunately, as a majority, you're, you're correct. No. Yeah. Uh, but we're going to talk about a few things to consider and uh, – Get some of you guys' insight, too, because Steve already has one that's made it through, a couple that's in, and mm-hmm. uh, John, you're right there in the thick of it as well. That's so right. This should be a fun topic. Yeah, great topic. All right, we're going to start off here, though, with the financial fact of the week. Yeah, this comes from uh, AARP, and guys, this does not surprise me at all. Uh, only one out of three American workers surveyed, about 32% uh, to the to the uh, percent there, um, that are at least age 50 
are very confident that they have accumulated sufficient assets for their uh, desired retirement objectives. So one out of three Americans over the age of 50 feel like they're on track. And it doesn't surprise me. We have people coming in our sure. our offices all the time that basically say, am I on track? They really have no idea. They've never done a financial plan before. So that really is the first step, um, you know, to, to kind of get a sense that, yes, you need to make some changes or maybe you're on track for that uh, that desired outcome. Yeah, these are these are AARP members, I suspect, over age 50. Yep. And uh, so, you know, the majority of those folks are probably retired already, and yet two-thirds of them don't have enough for retirement. It's the bottom line. Um, that's just a case in point of the retirement crisis, I think, that we're going to see here in America that's looming. Um, yeah, I, people aren't ready. I recently went into a high school and uh, spoke to, um, they were actually sophomore students, um, and uh, started talking about, you know, some of the emergency funds, stock market, and so forth, because, you know, and I encouraged them to go talk to their parents about it, but I told them, I said, your parents probably aren't going to understand all the concepts that we're talking about today. So, um, you know, it is a crisis. It's a retirement crisis in America. It really is. To. It really is. And the education needs to start early, you know, just yep. as we, we've talked about before. Um, okay, well, that leads up here to our first topic, and that is Insights from the Millionaire Next Door. And, you know, the famous book that was written, um, you know, back in the mid-'90s uh, by the late uh, Thomas Stanley, who recently passed away. So I think this is a great time to review that and and look at these timeless tips that he had, the seven basically traits that are common among, you know, among millionaires. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, he, he co-authored that book back in the mid-'90s, sold more than 2 million copies, and, uh, you know, spawned a, a slew of spinoffs, including The Millionaire Minds, The Millionaire Woman Next Door. You know, sadly, he died recently in a car accident. Um, you know, but at the time of his death, um, his he and his daughter, Sarah Fallow, a, a psychologist, were working on it together on kind of the latest iteration of The Millionaire Series, which hasn't come out yet. And she's going to continue working on that, I think, um, you know, post post uh, humanistly. And um, so but meanwhile, look, it's a great time to revisit, you know, some of the uh, findings they had, because when the duo set out to create this uh, composite of the American millionaire, they conducted their own survey of about a thousand high net worth individuals. And at the time, Stanley was a professor of marketing at Georgia State University, and Danko, the co-author, was Stanley's former research assistant who went on to become a marketing professor in his own right. And what they had found was that most millionaires shared seven key common traits. Um, all of which kind of create a lifestyle conducive to accumulating money. So yeah. we're going to talk about those seven traits right here. Yeah, you know, I didn't realize he was a professor of marketing. I would have thought he would have been a professor of, like, finance. or Yeah, and they interesting? You know, it is, it is. Yeah, but these are great tips here. The first one is live well below your means. I mean, that's what these a lot of these millionaires di- did. In the research, Stanley and Danko found that most millionaires weren't heavy spenders. The majority spent less than $200 on shoes. And only half could justify paying more than about $235 uh, for a wristwatch. So they watched what they spent. Another surprising finding is two-thirds of the millionaires that they surveyed said they followed a household budget. And so what does that mean? Millionaires, they paid attention to spending, and they counted the value of every purchase. They looked, and they kind of put a name on every single dollar, as Dave Ramsey you know, talks about. 
it also means that most millionaires kept track of their expenses. They knew, um, you know, where they were spending their money, and they also allocated a portion of it to um, to wealth building. Well, and you know that you you couldn't really put your finger on who these people were if you were to put them up in a lineup. Mm-hmm. You couldn't just say, "Oh, well, he's a millionaire, she's a millionaire." Uh, very few of these were very noticeable. Uh, and, that's exactly. You know, right. A lot of times, it's the exact opposite. People that exactly. are that are dressing nice, fancy houses, fancy cars have debt. Um, exactly. They don't have they don't have the wealth, so you can't look at someone and tell. You're exactly right. Yeah, that's true. By the way, this comes the, these tips are are insights about his book come out of an article from Yahoo Finance um, by Mandy Woodruff, and uh, it's a great article here. And so that was the first one, live well below your means. The second one here is they allocate their time, energy, and money efficiently in ways conducive to building wealth. Um, for example, what Stanley and Danko found was that millionaires were more likely to invest time planning their household finances than, for example, shopping for a car. You know, on the flip side, most people would a lot more, you know, likely, uh, rather, they would a lot more like to, you know, have fun and, and allocate time comparing car prices than they would sit down with a financial planner and figuring out how much more money, you know, that they need to save to be able to stop working at a certain age. But millionaires, they prioritize their time and allocate it to things that really make a difference down the road. They focus on the big picture as well as on the small items, and they keep it all in perspective, spend their time planning. I think that's one one area that Dave Ramsey is so successful on is he gets people to make finance a priority. The Financial Peace University gets people looking at budgets and talking about it versus you know, right. watching, um, you know, the the voice or, you know, one of those reality shows. Spend some time on your on your future on this stuff. Well, and it, it's not just about the accumulation of dollars for dollars sake. Mm-hmm. You know, it's about using those dollars uh, for purchasing that time, you know, Steve, that you were talking about. Um, then number three here on the list, they believe in financial independence is more important than displaying the high social status. You know, like we were talking about a little bit earlier, uh, they they inoculate themselves from heavy spending by constantly reminding themselves that many people uh, who have these high status artifacts, man, they're really up in debt to their mm-hmm. ears a yeah, lot of times. Right, right. You know, I love one of the commercials uh, on TV that shows the guy that's on the. Uh, the lawnmower riding across his lawn, and he's just got a big smile on his face, but he says, hey, I'm up in debt to my ears you know, or to my eyeballs, but he's really not happy. Exactly. You know? uh, he's, yeah. he's just swimming in a sea of debt. So you know, driving that paid-for car uh, is more important, and it puts you in a better position than dragging this ball and chain around mm-hmm. uh, for years and years and years and just the behavior that's associated with that. Yeah, I mean, if you know the Joneses are up to their nostrils in, in, in debt, then, you know, you don't care about them driving their fancy Jaguar, you know, next door, knowing that your paid-for old clunker man is, it's is paid just for. that. It's paid for. Because <laughs> there's a lot right? more stress that's associated with that. That's exactly right. It's a good one. Okay, we'll continue this list when we come back from our break. But if you have questions, you can email us at info at moneymd.net, or you can give us a call at Richard Young Associates at 706-739-0725. You're listening to Money MD. We'll be right back after these messages. Money, money, money. 
Welcome back to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. I'm Steve Marbert, a certified financial planner, and I'm here with John Travis, who is a Dave Ramsey local provider, and Gordon Leppard, who is an advisor at Richard Young Associates. And we are continuing our discussion here before the break about the seven insights from the millionaire next door by the late Tom Stanley, Thomas Stanley, who... um, recently passed away here and you know this is a timeless book from mm-hmm. the mid 90s yeah. it just has some great insights about folks that you know have become wealthy you know what what habits do they have in their lifestyle that made them that way what yeah. do they have in common i think these are like you said these are timeless these are things that our kids can teach their kids i mean these are not going to go away i mean it's simple things like doing a budget right exactly making sure you know where your money's going and allocating it appropriately Exactly. You know, and number one here on the list, John, what you covered was they live well below their means. Um, they just simply they just simply spend less than they earn, mm-hmm. you know, and they pay attention to it, right? They look at every expense and they keep track of those things um, and they, they have a budget. Um, so that was number one. Number two we talked about was they, they allocate their time, energy, and money efficiently in a way conducive to building wealth. You know, they don't spend a lot of time on the... The small stuff, I mean, they kind of focus on the big picture, on the big things. They prioritize their time toward things that, that really make a difference, um, you know, and, and they just, they just, they, and planning is one of those, mm-hmm. um, budgeting. You mean planning is more important than, um, you know, the, the lost survivor or whatever the <laughs> latest right. reality show is? It's right. I mean, they just use their time efficiently. Exactly. You know, they don't sit around. Maybe maybe they, they multitask, right? There they're, you go. They might be doing some planning while they're watching the uh, well, that's, reality It's better than not doing any at all. Exactly. <laughs> um, you know, the next one here on the list was that um, that they believe financial independence is more important than displaying a high social status, meaning that, you know, they don't try to keep up with the Joneses. They don't care about appearances. They'll drive their old car, you know. They won't go buy a new car and... And uh, just to look flashy, um, you know, they're going to do what's pragmatic from a financial standpoint, regardless of how it looks on the outside. So I think that was a really a key one. So that's a great one. Next one here that we haven't talked about yet is their parents did not provide economic outpatient care. I like the way they put that, you know, (laughs) Millionaires rarely become millionaires in their own right if their parents are constantly financing their lives. Otherwise, they risk becoming too financially dependent to make their own way. So, you know, let your kids go. Let go of your kids. Let them fail if necessary so that they can learn the effect of their financial decisions. You know, it's not tough love as much as it's smart love, and that is teaching them to fish forever instead of providing them food for a day. Yeah, that's good. That's yeah. that's really good. I like that one. Number five here on the list is their adult children are financially self-sufficient. Kind of ties right into that. You know, teaching kids to be self-sufficient not only means encouraging them to create their own financial security, but also ensures that they won't be staying in your basement, you know, and draining your financial resources, um, you know, like father, like son. So you've got you to teach them. You've got to show them your habits. Um, you've got to let them know how you operate talk with them about money you know when i was talking to the high school students recently i'm like go home and talk to your your kids about this stuff i know all three of us spend time doing that it's important to um to talk about it in our household we didn't talk a lot about it um until i got into teen years and i think that's where my money habits were shaped talking to my 
my mom and my dad about their habits and their thoughts and their beliefs. So, you know, spend some time with them on it. Exactly. And that makes a difference, no doubt. Okay, that's a good one. The next one here is they are proficient at targeting market opportunities. Um, And so essentially what that means is the wealthy become wealthy often by targeting occupations that serve other wealthy people. Um, That's their market. You know, that's where the real money is. Um, Stanley and Danko argue, uh, you know, jobs that serve the wealthy, for example, estate planning, law, accounting, often come with bigger paychecks. So being intentional about your profession in an effective and getting an effective education, as we talk about here, um, you know, with the money doctors, mm-hmm. I mean, that's one of the keys to being wealthy. So as we you've heard us say before, you need to ensure your kids are getting an effective education that will position them well for the future. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, and that leads right into uh, it says they chose the right occupation. You know, many of these people, they're, they're risk takers, you know, entrepreneur type people. Uh, and it said nearly half of the millionaires they interviewed owned a business of some sort. But the vast majority said they would not encourage their children to follow in their footsteps. Now, there's a couple of things that would tie around that. You mm-hmm. know, for one, um, they want to make sure that their their kids choose what they're passionate about and, and also choose what fits them because what right. they might have done as a parent might not necessarily fit the child. And, you know, there are definitely some dangers to trying to force your child or, you know, someone into that position to take over something that you've built and you've worked on for, say, 30, 40 years. You know, that's a detriment to not only them, but potentially, um, you know, your business. So, you know, keeping that keeping that in mind, um, you know, a lot of them were were risk takers and uh, yeah, they, they took some. Some steps, and they also there. encourage them to go into you know getting the right occupation as well, whether it's law, medical, um, right? You know, but I think the passion, I think that's key. You don't want to push somebody into something they're not either talented in or have a passion for because that doesn't turn out well. No, that's exactly right. Yeah, but finding the right occupation is definitely, definitely, uh, you know, it's key. very important. That's right. And you know, entrepreneur taking some risk is is another key that he obviously points to so yeah that was number seven here but yeah stanley and danko's findings they, they still ring true today you know but it's interesting the audience really couldn't be more different i mean when the book was published in 1996 the economy was booming most people were blissfully unaware of the pending dot-com bubble and burst that was going to come in you know 2000 um and no one knew that in just over a decade the great recession would squeeze the middle class beyond recognition and divide the rich and the poor as we've seen happen here recently um you know but the millionaire next door it encourages the view that real millionaires of america the frug are the frugal spenders the self-made entrepreneurs the savers next door you know who don't seek attention and they don't flaunt their wealth they haven't haven't actually done anything all that extraordinary to achieve its success, but yet their lifestyle has has created mm-hmm. the environment that made them successful. Um, but, you know, if we learned anything from the Great Recession, it's that unanticipated setbacks like, you know, a job loss, unlucky diagnosis, you know, and bad mortgage loan, all those things can send anyone's personal finances teetering not to mention factors beyond people's control, such as lagging wage growth and rapidly increased, you know, fixed costs like housing, health care, and education. Despite all of that, though, um, the message that anyone can accumulate wealth, that they plan well and put in 
the work is still one that America that that, that <clears throat> believes in and that sells in America because it's still true. Yeah, and I think that's why again Dave Ramsey is so successful. Is he sells a process and hope that you can get there. It, it doesn't happen overnight though. It takes time. But um, I love that book, and those are that's a great. Uh, Yep. Great, great topic. Sure is. Okay, well, that leads us up here to our question of the week. Yeah, this question is um, it's kind of general in nature, so we don't have all the background on it, but um, the question is, I have 100000 in cash, uh, which is a lot. Congratulations. Um, should I pay off my $50,000 mortgage? And, um, you know, I, I think if there's no other debt involved, maybe the, the answer would be yes, but there's a lot of other circumstances. Is this the only money you have? Um, you know, how old are you? kids funded retirement funded retirement what's your income situation look like yeah absolutely there's a lot of other pieces to the puzzle but in general i think you know we're we're believers of trying to get out of debt um having an emergency fund and so forth so um you know i think i think the answer is generally yes but it depends right yeah it can be a great idea no doubt um if you have a hundred thousand that's sitting in the bank and it's only earning you know half percent you know probably at the most today, yeah, right. Uh, then you know you have a mortgage. It's obviously more than that. It might be three, four percent. Certainly, you should pay off your mortgage if you're only going to use half that. You're still going to have an emergency fund. Having said that, um, you know, yeah, if you have other debt that you might, you should pay that off first. Mortgage is kind of the last resort in mm-hmm. terms of debt to pay off. Um, the mortgage is also tax deductible, so you know you got to look at the tax implications. Uh, but in general, yeah, that's you probably should pay it off. And and, and I know we see sometimes people um, ask if they should take money out of their retirement. Definitely and that's a not. different. That's a different. That's a yeah. different situation. Totally right. Had that question just this week. You know, should I take money out of retirement plan and pay off this sixty five thousand dollar mortgage that's left here? I'm getting ready to retire. I want to get that behind me. Um, you know, it'd be nice to get your mortgage behind you, but absolutely do not take it out of retirement plan. The the tax consequences of that are, are horrendous. Mm-hmm. You know, it kicks you in a higher tax bracket. You get that whole big lump sum. You got to take out, you know, 30, 40, 50 percent more to net the amount that you need to pay off your debt. Yeah, that's, a, that's um, an expensive way of doing it. No real doubt. expensive way. And then you kill the goose that's laying the golden egg. You know, that, that retirement plan is kicking out tax-deferred mm-hmm. income inside that plan. You're going to kill that by taking that huge lump sum out. So we don't want to do that. Yeah, for that's, sure. That's scary. Plus, if you're under 59 and a half, is a 10% penalty. So Exactly. Yeah, you got to be of age for sure. Okay, that brings us to uh, our break here. But if you have questions, you can email us at info at moneymd.net, or you can give us a call at Richard Young Associates during regular business hours at 706-739-0725. You're listening to Money MD. We'll be right back after these messages and Gina News. Stay with us. Welcome back to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. I'm Steve Marbert, a certified financial planner, and I'm here with John Travis, who's a Dave Ramsey local provider, and Gordon Leppard, who is a financial advisor at Richard Young Associates. And we are going to um, lead off our next segment here with a new topic, and that is the five secrets colleges are keeping from you. Yeah, I mean, colleges, you know, they're... There, I've always suspected they were a little bit, um, mm-hmm. 
kind of uh, uh, sneaky, sneaky yep. in the way they do things. I mean, the books have always driven me crazy. How they just rob you on on books, and they are they're in cahoots oh, yeah. with the publisher. Oh, it's, so I've never felt like they were very overhand. But this is talking more about tuition and, and applications and things, and I I think. It, that just stands to reason. It's pretty good insight. I yeah, like it. It really is. And, you know, guys, I mean, th- I, you know, I know, Steve, you and I know this, and Gordon, you will know and this. I'm learning. And uh, this and is I'm one thing we communicate guys. to our clients is, I mean, colleges are a big business. I mean, it, big it, business. they are, you know, it's changed since we went through. Um, when, when I was in college, um, we had like 18 electives. Um, so it's about six classes. You could take in anything that you wanted to. Now they have like one. And so when you change majors... All those classes that you took in the first year that maybe were in line with your major are no longer valid. So Absolutely. It doesn't matter. Unfortunately, we learned and that yeah, the and hard I think, way. And I think they want to stretch it out. Oh, absolutely. They, they want to keep you there. Absolutely. I mean, so most kids don't graduate in four years. I mean, yeah. five years is the average because most kids change majors. And they have no flexibility. So um, that's not one of the secrets. That's that's a fact. It's a reality. <laughs> it is. It is. And, of course, books are one of the other facts. You know, I mean, since we're beating up on colleges this morning. <laughs> that's I right. mean, now they don't give you a hard copy book. Yeah. They'll give you a stupid loose-leaf binder. But what makes you have to buy that every year? Well, they have an online code. Yes, that's right. right. That's and right. so you have to pay $300 for the stupid loose-leaf binder, you know, three-ring notebook. Yeah. And 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 but you got to get the online code because all the assignments and all the examples and all the questions and all the stuff that your kid really needs is online. Here's one worse: is you don't even get a book; it's online. There you go. So you yeah. don't have anything, and that would drive me crazy because I'm somebody that needs I need yeah. to be able to touch something and scribble and make notes and so forth. So I, you know, I, yeah. It's yeah just, oh, and then you're going to pay for you know online and you know student housing and all this stuff. You're going to be at college. And and then half your classes are going to be online. Yes, your kid will right. be sitting in his dorm room taking his class, and <laughs> you know, yet you've paid you know thousands, tens of thousands of dollars to send him up there when he could have been doing this from yeah. home can for you, half of it. Can you can you tell that you and I are um, <laughs> you know experienced <laughs> college payers? Yes, we are. And, and I'm just so, trying to listen and learn. So That's this right. is listen. just adding to the fuel the fuel to the fire. Absolutely, here. you know, guys. While universities may lure students with fancy brochures, you know, talking about luxury housing. Uh, scenic architecture. The reality is that colleges, they are definitely a high-stakes business. They're preoccupied with enhancing their own prestige and also profit. I mean, they are definitely profit-driven. And So here are five secrets that college administrators probably would not want to – they don't want you to know this. All right, so we're going to share this on the on the uh, Money MD show. And, and this actually came from um, – uh, wealth management magazine that we that we subscribe to and so it has a lot of good insights the first one is marketing material can be meaningless i mean the college admissions business is a numbers game colleges want to encourage as many students to um to apply because that allows them to reject more of them <laughs> right yeah there you go yeah you know schools that can bring about higher rejection rates they look more elusive uh, which can be can lead to more people applying. And uh, one effective way for schools to generate more applications is through flattery. Schools send out these marketing materials to students who have no possibility at all getting in. So they, they want to try to ramp up the interest and the prestige and so forth so they get more applications associated with That's it. right. They just want an application from those people. That's right. And then they've made it easy. I mean, another ploy is to email students VIP applications that make it um, – 
seem that they have been singled out for special treatment. And some of these priority applications may allow teens to apply for free, um, not submit an essay or, or, you know, make the process much simpler in some other way. And they they list a couple of um, schools here that are really popular on the East Coast that have enjoyed success with this approach. And while students receive these applications, they assume they have some inside track. In reality, you know, many of these students have no chance um, of getting admitted to the school. So they're trying to pump up their numbers to make it more prestigious so they can have a higher rejection rate. Now, to me, that's really mean, it, you know, to make students feel like they, they they actually will get accepted to this university and they go through all, that, all the trouble to apply, mm-hmm. and they had no intention of accepting them in the first place because yeah. their SAT scores or whatever weren't high enough. Yeah, there's a reason we often refer to colleges as the college cartel. <laughs> that's right. You know, because, <laughs> I mean, they're they're in cahoots. A lot of times to to do this. Yeah, and another secret here, number two, is they can't get enough applications. Um, Schools, they want as many applications as they possibly can get, you know, and it's much easier to apply to schools today than it it used to be because they have this thing called the Common Application that's used by more than 500 schools. And the Common App allows students to complete one application that can be sent instantly to countless schools and that application has has encouraged many students to apply to more schools than they did in the past. So in 2009, for example, just 11% of students applied to seven or more schools. But by 2011, just two years later, 29% of students were applying to at least seven institutions. So they really are trying to pump up their numbers. Yeah, no doubt. And the University of Chicago... Uh, it used to have a really uh, unique and demanding application to, to generate more applicants. But a few years ago, administrators there, were they were dismayed that the, um, the schools like Harvard and Standard, they were attracting more applicants. So the school began deploying uh, more regional admission reps to generate interest and boost its rejection rate. So they started looking at that as well. And the strategy worked. The percentage of students that were accepted by the University of Chicago plunged from 35% several years ago to 9% today. So they're trying to get they're those trying, mass applications in there. They're trying to make it seem very, very exclusive because right. they only accept, you know, 10% of their applications or something. And the truth is they're just pumping up the number of people that apply. Yep, that's right. This yeah. is kind of the marketing scheme that Pinterest used. Mm. I don't know if you remember when it started out, but it was an invite exclusive oh, I didn't site know only. There you and go. so really it's just a, that's a marketing scheme. Yeah. Um, third is... How you list colleges on the FAFSA um, can hurt you. So when parents file the free application for federal student aid, they must list the institutions where the child, where, where they're going to apply. So the U.S. Department of Education shares the FAFSA information with all the designated schools on the application list. The federal government never intended for this information to be used as like a tip sheet for colleges but it's become one nonetheless. Yeah, that, that, mean, that's that's, just, so, that's uh, wrong. That really makes me mad. You know, they have early does. enrollment at these schools. My yeah. guess is, is if you early enroll, it reduces your chances to get scholarships because you're there. That's right. They don't need you. They don't need to give out scholarships to people that are. Oh, I've always believed that if you if you disclose to them that you have the ability to pay. They're going to let you. Know, you. They're going to give. They're well. They're going to like you, but they're also not going to give you as much scholarship money. Absolutely. So I, you know, I, if I once I figured out that I probably wasn't going to get get financial aid, I didn't fill out the FAFSA. Yeah. Because you know, if they get that information and say, "Oh, this guy can pay full fare," yeah. Then guess what? 
you're not going to get the the, the 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 you know any of the financial aid that, or the scholarship money that they would give a normal student. Well, yeah, that or you better be able to run a four four forty. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Throw the football hundred yards. That's I mean, right. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. It's it's about. Um, location as well guys i mean if you're in a in the wrong location uh, there's some universities on the east coast and west coast tend to be more expensive and they they're less generous um and their scholarships and financial aids schools up in new york um you know northeastern fordham and so forth you know they have so many people trying to get into their schools they just don't have to offer a lot for people to come in so location sometimes hurts you as well yeah that's exactly right you know and and rich students do enjoy an advantage um, colleges, you know, they love affluent students um, because, I mean, affluent students, they, they often can, uh, they refer to them as full-pay students privately mm-hmm. because wealthy students, they can, uh, you know, be less accomplished with lower academic profiles and still enjoy admission advantage over the lower middle-income applicants at many schools. So, yes, I mean, money does talk. They, they like people that can pay. Well, and, and many of these colleges and universities uh, are need-aware, and that means that the, the institutions, they select a certain percentage of their freshman class without regard to an applicant's ability to pay. And then they begin choosing teenagers and you know students whose parents can't afford to pay the full fare. So like you were saying earlier, Steve, you know they, they just place a lot of these people, hey, these, these people can pay, or we just know we have a certain number of seats yeah. and beds we need to fill. Yeah, I think the takeaway from this article, guys, is um, you, you know, particularly on the on the FAFSA, if you if you're filling that out, they they recommend that you um, list the colleges in alphabetical order. So if you do have a favorite, don't put it at the top. That's actually being used to hurt you. Mm. And I also would recommend people don't early enroll. I mean, let it go through the process. Um, you, I, th- I think you you increase your chances for scholarships that way. So I think that's true. Yeah, I think it's true. I mean, yeah, especially if you. And I wouldn't accept. I would not accept until after they tell you how much scholarship money you're getting. Yeah, that's right. If you accept before that, then you know, forget it. They're not giving you as much scholarship money because right. they know you're committed. So just be smart about it. I mean, there's a lot of tricks here. I mean, colleges are they're a big business. No doubt. They really are. Okay, that leads up to our break here. But if you have questions, you can email us at info at moneymd.net or give us a call, 706-739-0725. You're listening to Money MD. We'll be right back after these messages. Stay with us. Welcome back to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. I'm Steve Marbert, a certified financial planner. I'm here with John Travis, who is a Dave Ramsey local provider, and Gordon Leopard, who is a financial advisor at Richard Young Associates. And we are going to start off our last segment here with the prescription of the week. Yeah, this prescription is to consider converting an old IRA to a Roth account and uh, qualify that if you're in a lower tax bracket. And also you have the cash to pay for the tax bill. Because when you do exactly. a conversion from an IRA to a Roth, the government's going to say, all right, you owe me some money. If you do a $10,000 conversion, you're in a 25% tax bracket, you know, 7% state. That's 32% you're going to have to pay. Out of your pocket. Out of your pocket. And you shouldn't do this unless you can pay that with cash outside of this $10,000. But if you can pay it out of your pocket, you're in, in essence, you're getting... 30% more or 20% more, whatever the taxes are, you're getting more that much more mm-hmm. into a tax advantage yeah. retirement plan. This is a great, it's a great, great strategy. It's a great tool. I think you need to be in a 15% tax bracket to mm-hmm. do it or less. 
and you know you need to do enough of it to that you're not kicking yourself up into the 25% bracket. So just enough to top out. That's about $90,000 of gross income for a joint for joint filers yeah, today. Right. You know, so anything less than that, yeah, I think it's it's something to look at. I had a gentleman that uh, asked me uh, a couple of weeks ago about backdooring uh, into the Roth account because he's not eligible from an income standpoint. So yeah. he makes he makes over 180 and uh, we were talking about it, and I'm like, you know, when you start getting into the higher tax brackets, uh, you know, first of all, do you have the cash to pay for it? And he said, yeah, I have that. Um, but then you start looking at the tax rates, and he said he was in the um, 33% tax bracket. And so then you're talking about another 7% for state, 6 or 7 So you're 40% taxes. And at that point, you're like, uh, you know, you're paying a, a hefty price to get it into the Roth account. But And you can only do six, you know, 5500 a year. And you have to convert it every single year. Uh, yeah, I just don't know that it's worth it. Yeah, I know it's. But yeah, it's something. It's a it's a strategy. It is a strategy. Well, yeah. and it may be something worth uh, you know, especially the younger clients considering on the front end. Oh yeah. That hey, all right, I'm going to get my match here at the 401k, mm-hmm. and then uh, also making sure that they put a little attention to that Roth, you know, from the beginning. Absolutely. You know. Okay, good uh, prescription of the week. And that leads us up here to our final topic, and that is adult children and finances. You know, are your children ready? I think this is a great article here out of Ron Blue and Company. Well, this this article uh, was done by, like you said, Ron Blue and Company, and it definitely leaves some room for discussion here because, you know, uh, many people, they have many different views, uh, several different views on uh, how they should kind of help their their children along or not, you know. And and I think uh, a lot of it gets back to uh, just, you know, how we prepare them Mm -hmm. and how we're trying to get ready. You know, this is a very common question that I know you guys have uh, ran into a lot uh, from clients and friends is, you know, how to handle the financial implications of children that are graduating from college or graduate school. You know, many of these young adults have never had the responsibility um, to pay their own housing, determine how much insurance coverage uh, they should have on their car, or even look at the options that they may have, you know, within their health insurance coverage. Now, uh, I know this is a little bit different with you guys, kids, because you know. However, as well as you may try, I'm sure you have, uh, you still had certain challenges in this process. Mm-hmm. Steve, you've uh, you still have two in college. You have one that's been very successful. You know, completing the CPA program. Uh, and his master's degree at uh, Clemson. Now he's with a great firm. John, you know, you have one that's in school right now and one about to start school. So, you know, I'm kind of watching from the from the back end here. I've got a six and an eight year old, and I'm still trying to learn from the doctors here. Uh, so there, there, there are definitely some things I think that you guys can shed light on and uh, kind of enlighten our listeners about. Yeah, sure, sure. We'd like to. Yeah, I mean, probably one of the most immediate of needs that young adults have in our society, I think, is to know how to develop a budget or a spending plan that meets their level of income. You know, and in some cases, they've never had to live on a budget. In other cases, if the young adult has, has worked while in school, that the earnings might have been, you know, allocated toward, you know, leisure expenses such as eating out entertainment or enhancing their wardrobe. You know, for my kids, I've only made them pay, you know, ex- expenses basically while they're at college. And, um, you know, but now, I mean, after graduation, you know, the parents desire, you know, as mine are, to see their kid as a young adult now um, become financially independent. But yet, you know, there could have been a little more guidance along the way 
you know, I think particularly through our school systems, mm-hmm. um, to, you know, learn how to do that. And, um, exactly, prepare them. But, you know, we, we want to we do this in a reasonable manner, and, uh, you know, that's really the point here. And so, you know, I mean, this is possible, and if parents are willing and the, the child is teachable, you can put a young adult on a path to financial freedom. And I will say that, um, you know, you talk about schools. I mean, a couple of years ago, we uh, supported a program that's called Foundations um, yeah. uh, in Finance by Dave Ramsey. It's over at South Aiken uh, High School. And they're actually, they started off with two classes per year. They're up to three classes per year. And I just talked to the uh, the um, instructor over there, and they're going to four classes because it's so popular. Wow. Fantastic. Uh, it really is. And um, wow. so, you know, trying to get that education in school is um, is needed. Well, and I, I also had the, the opportunity to work with North Columbia Elementary <coughs> School on doing a money cluster. And, mm-hmm. and we talked about, you know, work saving spending and giving and we were able to put these things in context for third to fifth graders and you know it's it's just starting there planting those seeds because you know what it comes down to you know you were talking about the spending plan uh this helps set them up to make better economic choices you know and that's really at the heart of financial planning is is making good choices you know do i buy a brand new car and save a little uh while longer to pay cash for or save a little more, you know, to, to pay cash for a slightly used one. Do I buy or rent uh, in the nicest gated community with all the bells and whistles that I probably won't even use? You know, these are things that they're they're asking themselves. How do I handle, say, my student loan if I have a student loan? You know, do I just pay the minimum or do I really, really get after it, you know, and pay that thing off? Yeah, and I'm uh, kind of coaching a um, uh college senior right now that's going to be graduating and um he is deciding to um he's going to live with his parents um for the first year and use all of his income he's going to be a teacher i don't know he'll probably make 35 a year but he's going to use all that to pay off the student loan debt that's great in the first year so you know recommendation is is when you come out of school live like you did in college take that income and try to get you know, situated financially. Yeah, he'll stick that behind that. you. Yeah, yeah exactly. So anyway, that's that's um, that's a great um, you know when you when you look at a, a choice. There's another option here. Um, money doctors don't necessarily uh, agree with this. There's some there's some uh, could be some issues with it and some experience that we've seen some of our clients with. But it's called a glide path, and it's basically if your young adults out there is not able to um, to live with their their income that's coming out, you can um, maybe pay some of the bills, maybe maybe insurance, maybe cell phone, but there's a danger in that as well. And that's a strong word, too, able. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, that's the thing. I mean, you know, once you start on that path, I think that's a slippery slope, and it can last forever. Um, it's really hard to wean them off that once you start paying their cell phone or start paying, you know, their car insurance or something like that. I think, you know, I mean, what's wrong with them living at home, Paying you like minimal rent, hundred and fifty bucks a month, mm-hmm. something like that. Working at McDonald's if they have to, and you know, creating a budget around that income level. Yeah, it can be done. I think you have to teach them from day one that you live off of what you make. Yep. You, you make enough to live, and you live within your means. And if you ever decided to do that, we do have um, people that are listening that may are helping their kids out. Have a contract. Make it formal. Say six months after six months, yeah, it's, it's you, done. You got to have a hard. You got to have a hard break. Yeah, yeah. Re- really, take a, a a good, strong, long look at that before you enter that contract. You know, and just it, it really gets down to the behavior. Mm-hmm. You know, you're trying to instill uh, 
good values and good behavior practices here because um, sooner or later, you know, they do want to be independent. You want them independent. Uh, that will be crucial to your retirement plan. <laughs> so if you're, <laughs> you know, if you're listening so. to this today and you don't have uh, adult kids, um, maybe you have um, kids that are, you know, your age, six and eight years old. I know you speak right. with them, but start talking to them early about um, budgeting and a simple budget for an eight-year-old is ten percent giving, fifteen percent saving, and the other seventy-five percent they can do whatever they want to with. That's what it really boils down to. That's right. Even for adults, you know, give, save, and then spend on what you make. The, the rest, we, of yeah, we actually do a fifty, twenty-five, twenty-five. Okay, good deal. You Man, know, you're tough. They're just, they're, but they're getting it. Do you have a house percentage? Is it you know you get a piece of the- yeah? We're, well, we're making we're making them pay rent. Okay, there you go. Six yeah, and eight. That's, so that's they're getting they, they, like they understand there there is a cost to living. There you go. <laughs> Establish that right up front. There you go. Yeah, and I, I don't believe in allowances either. I always believe in workfare. You Submission. know, yeah. that's exactly right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you, exactly you want right. money, you do chores. You allowance do jobs. Connotates. Yeah. You know, yeah. they deserve so. it. That's exactly right. That's a great topic. All right. Well, good one. Um, that leads up to our close here, though, of this week's edition of Money MD. Tune in next Saturday from 9 to 10 a.m. to hear more prescriptions for your financial health. And do check us out on our website, moneymd.net. You can link to us there um, directly, or you can email us your questions at info at moneymd.net. You can listen to our podcast there, download old shows. Um, And, of course, you can give us a call during regular business hours at Richard Young Associates at 706-739-0725. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. Have a good one. Have a great weekend. Material on this program is intended for general information only and should not be taken as specific investment, tax, or legal advice. None of the information contained in this broadcast is intended by the host to be a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. Endorsed local provider is an endorsement of customer service only and does not reflect quality of investment decisions and is not connected to investment returns. Further information is available by contacting Richard Young Associates, a registered investment advisor. Security sold through Independent Financial Group, LLC, member of FINRA and SIPC.